Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get Real. This is Chapter 206 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and this week we're closing out Women's History Month with a couple of nonfiction books for women, about women, and by women. We've all heard it thousands of times. Communication is the key to any relationship. But what does that really mean? For one side, maybe it means opening yourself up even though you might get hurt. For the other... It means really paying attention to what's being said and offering support. In her book, Dear White Woman, Please Come Home, author and educator Kimberly Williams attempts to foster this kind of open and honest communication between white and black women through a series of 40 letters written by a black woman to a missing white sister. She tells me the book came from a desire to break down a long existing barrier between the two groups. I was in a workshop that was designed for black women and white women to get together and to connect, to heal, and to share truth with one another. And one of the last activities of the day was for black women to say to white women, hey, this is, this is something I haven't, I've been withholding from you, and here's why I didn't tell you. And most of the time, the woman of color said, I didn't tell you because I didn't think you cared. Um, and, and most of the white women responded well, I didn't even have a chance to care because I didn't know. How, how, how could I care? Of course I care. You know, and I thought to myself, and, it, and, and that was repeated, woman after woman after white woman after white woman. And I got angry because at that point I thought, like, they must be lying, right? And so I, I, I rode home, like, fuming from that um, workshop. And I was like, they, they're lying. You know, we're on the news every day. It's in newspapers. It's in magazines every day. How could they not know? And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, you know, ah, speaking for my family and the community that I come from, we actually are trained not to tell white people the truth um, because oftentimes they're in a position of power where they have the um, they have access to to our stability. And they have, you know, with tears or with a story. Right. I'm thinking back to Emmett Till's story. Right. He lost his life because of something that was a story that was told about him. And so um, we often don't tell the truth. And I said, well, you know what? I'm tired of hearing that white people and white women specifically don't know. So I'm going to write a book. And I'll tell you, I think, Lisa, I was joking when I said that because I was angry. <laughs> um, but I, I did. I just started writing. And, and I thought to myself, the methods that I have seen um, in diversity, equity, and inclusion books or in um, articles and things um, really leaned into the fact that we were angry. 
right? And I told you anger is what began this book. But I felt like anger was not a tactic that's been um, productive in the past. And so I thought, like, what, you know, I created the entire premise of the missing, um, the kidnapped sister and, and, and wrote letters to this long lost sister. And I think that that creating that or broadcasting that sisterhood, that angle is, is something that we as black women and culturally and traditionally share um, and inviting white women into that too. And so I'm hoping that that, that premise is a little bit more, um, it hits home a little bit better. I think also you do a really good job of clearing things up, because let's be honest, we hear phrases like implicit bias and microaggressions thrown around. But I don't think unless you've experienced them, you don't really know what that means. And you lay out so clearly and so concretely what these situations are like and what they feel like and Mm -hmm. what someone as a white woman can do if she witnesses this happening. Yes, because oftentimes people tell me, you know, you know what, something like that happened, uh, you know, right in front of me the other day, and I didn't know what to say, or I didn't know what to do. And so I did nothing, or I said nothing. Um, And so I want, I want people not only to see themselves in these stories as uh, the perpetrator, but I want them to see themselves as a bystander. And I want them to feel empowered to become an upstander the next time they're in one of these uh, situations or witnessing one of these situations, because it really is a lot more simple than um, than I think our fear would have us to believe. Right. I was going to ask you: Is it, it does this stem from from fear? Does this stem from worrying about making the situation worse? Is it not knowing how to react? Not knowing if a person wants help? Like, or is mm-hmm. it just a combination of all of that? You hit the nail on the head with two things that you said: Is it fear, um, and is it wanting? Is it knowing if the person even wants help? Right. I think fear keeps us stuck in inaction, right? Because we're afraid of saying the wrong thing. We're afraid of doing the wrong thing. Oftentimes white people um, go, and this just happened to me recently, they go after the person who's on the receiving end, right? And like, you know, I was in a bakery a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, um, and a white woman stepped in front of me and my niece in line. And, and, the, and the barista saw it. Like, you saw the reaction on her face. Um, and she reached out to us and said, are you all ready? And I said, you know, I said, it's okay. I didn't even want to deal with the confrontation. And then we had to go to the other side of the counter to wait for our warm drinks that she had prepared. And, and she came over and she said, you know, I don't know what was wrong with that woman. She, I, she clearly saw that you all were in line. I can't believe she stepped in front of you. And it's not us that need the conversation. Every time I ask a person of color, if you could say anything, to a white person, what would you say? They always say the same thing. Get your people. Get your people. Right? And so knowing that in that situation, the person of color is looking for the white person to address their people. And by their people, we mean other white people. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess, you know, I'm sitting here listening and I'm, I'm trying to think of situations where I maybe saw something. And I know for me it comes from a fear because I hate speaking out no matter what. Mm-hmm. And speaking up mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I grew up in a household where, you know, you respected authority and we all have those. Right. We all grew up with what that authority is. But it also right. seems like it, it's one of those things where it's become so entrenched. And obviously yes. one book's not going to make the difference. But right. I guess if we can get the conversation started, mm-hmm. that can lead to change. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
100%. The book's about a missing sister yeah. and, and, and this almost, it feels like, impossible sisterhood between Black and white women. Why do you think it's so hard for these two groups to, to forge real friendships? Is it just that we're coming from, from opposite sides of life or is there more there? It, there is more there because I'll, I'll tell you, I have, um, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of her. Um, I, ha- I do have a, um, you know that I, I work to publish this book with uh, Debbie Irving. Um, and so we've spent a lot of time together. This book has been four years in the making, and we've spent a lot of time together over the last four years. But we were, we were friends before we started working on this book project. Um, and this project has only deepened our friendship and our sisterhood. Um, I do have white women friends, and I'm thinking of one um, who is, her name is Shelly, and she is like, it's as if we grew up together. And honestly, we just met each other last year. Um, so, and and I would say, when I think of our relationship and our, our bond, I see her as my sister. And it's not because we don't have differences. She definitely comes from a different background than I do. Like, she's out hiking and like, skiing and, and this kind of, you're never going to see me um, hike, going hiking. You're never going to see me on a ski. That's not to say I've never done those things. I have. I've, I told myself I tried anything once, but um, you're not going to catch me on the slope. You're not going to catch me hiking. Um, it's just something I didn't grow up doing, right? So, but our relationship is past those differences. Our relationship is such a strong relationship because she knows the the mm, the downsides of white culture. Every culture has something that you are beaming with pride about, and and every culture has something that you are likely to be embarrassed about. And so when I call her and say this thing happened to me with a white woman, you know, I might say something like, I remember uh, just maybe a few months ago um, calling her and like weeping over something that had happened with a white woman, and um and I said, uh, you know, sometimes white folks are rude, and she just to comfort me. She said, nope, we're rude every day. I know what our culture looks like. I know what our cultural practices are. Tell me what happened. It wasn't, I didn't need to convince her, right? Because so often white people aren't able to see the collective behavior, right, of the group, because that's not a thing. White people don't see themselves as a group. They see themselves as individuals, right? One person has nothing to do with the other person. And so I, I, you know, and somebody said, you know, how can you trust the white women that are in your life if they also were raised the same way these women that you don't trust um, were raised? And I said, I only, I trust them not because they don't hurt me or can't hurt me. I trust them because of how they handle conflict when we enter into conflict. Um, you know, the, the, the greatest reason I would say that people of color do not share with white people when they have microaggressed them is that white people are holding on to the ideology, I am a good person, and will reach for that before reaching for healing the person they have harmed. I'm a good person. I need to explain to you what my intent was, why I said what I said, why I did what I did. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And the friends in my life don't reach for that. They, they own it. And I, this is something that I share, OAD. They own it. They apologize. And then we get to move on together. They don't circle back unless I invite them or ask them to circle back to that incident. And that's why I'm able to trust the white women that are in my life, whether that's Debbie Irving or whether that's Shelly, or I could go down my list of white women friends um, that I actually trust um, to be able to move past conflict and still be in relationship on the other side of that. And that, right, that's a cultural practice for white folks, too. You end up in conflict with somebody, you cut them off. 
I've seen that. I've seen that in my um, my partner is uh, biracial. I've seen that in her own family. Like you enter into conflict, you just cut the person off. Um, when you talk to people, white people are like, oh, yeah, I haven't talked to my my sibling in 10 years because of something that happened. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, so I, I'm thankful for the white women in my life that are able to own um, the ideologies and behaviors that come up because of white culture. Again, we all have cultural practices that we're like, oh, does this community need to, th- need to do this or need to, <laughs> need to think this way or act this way? It's just, it's just life, right? It's like a family. A culture, the culture that you, and community that you belong to is your family. There, We all have fa- things that we are very proud of in our families, and we all have things that we are embarrassed of in our families. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. You know, I know your book is meant to foster you know, cross-racial relationships, but in reading the stories, reading the exercises that come after each story, which I love that uh, you don't let readers off the hook easy. You make it hard on them and you tell them to go out, look this up if you don't know what this means. <laughs> but, you know, I can't help but think that that your book really could make us better humans to anyone who looks mm-hmm. different than us or has a different mm-hmm. upbringing than us, who comes mm-hmm. from a different culture from us. Mm-hmm. It's the truth. It is the truth because that's what we're missing, Lisa. We're missing. And, and I, I'm not sure that I see this with any other group in this country. I'm not sure I see this. But we are not given the, um, the benefit that other non-white groups are given. And I say, when I say we, I mean black people. Um, we are just called Americans, right? Sometimes, like on paper, we're called African Americans or we're called, you know, black Americans. But we're just called Americans. Right. But we actually have an entirely separate um, list of cultural practices. If we are raised, I'm going to say if we are raised in a traditional or a stereotypical black community or black family, there are black people that do not, um, you know, have were not raised in the black community and do not have those practices. Right. And then within the black community, there is diversity as well. So, like, we we are. Uh, we speak with a different tone of voice. We speak with a different cadence and rhythm. We dance differently, right? We, we, we cook differently. We do everything differently, but uh, we express ourselves differently. We express anger differently. We express joy differently. We express excitement differently. We express fear differently. And so, and so um, it's, it's, if we don't acknowledge that, if we don't acknowledge that, when we come up against those differences that you just spoke about, I think we expect those differences when we're talking to people from the Latinx community. We expect those differences from people who identify as indigenous or um, uh, First Nation or Native American. We, but it's something about black people that they're not given that benefit of having a different culture, a different way of life, a different way of seeing the world. And, um, and, when, and if we're in relationship with one another, Lisa, I get to teach you in the moment that you assume, right? I get to teach you in that moment that, hey, actually, in my family, we do it this way. And you get to say, like, what? I never knew that. And we get to move on. Like, and we get to, and we get to, we get to use sometimes when we go into that incident again, we get to use your way sometimes and we get to use my way sometimes. And that's what it's about. It's, it's, and that's where we, that's where we make the mistake is that white folks expect the way that they've done things or the way that they think about things or the way that they see things to be the norm or the standard for everyone. And it just isn't. It just isn't. 
So what's the first step that people can take to being a better ally? Uh, to, uh, the first step that you can take is being in relationship, being in relationship. First, Well, I'm going to back up a little bit. The first step is reading this book, right? Because, <laughs> because I just shared it raw, unfiltered truth. And I give you steps to take to ask yourselves um, these questions and to get better at this stuff immediately, right? Like I teach people when, when you enter into conflict, I teach people what to do so that you can heal, you can hold on to the relationships with, with people, like you said, from different backgrounds in your life. Because if not, you probably end up walking away from each other because that's our baseline. But you actually can be in relationship and in friendship with people who are from a different religion, people who are from a different race, people who are from different sexual orientations. You actually can remain in relationship and have close bonds um, if you're willing to do the work. But And, and the first step if, if that white people have to do is to sit back and study whiteness first, because this is what this is my bottom line, Lisa. When that which is normal to me lands poorly on that which is normal to you, you and I end up in conflict. But if you don't even know what is normal to you, then how can you how can you spot how can you spot when it's landed poorly on me, right? Like I, I've had people fight me on this and say, Kim, there's no such thing as white culture. And I say, let me give you a good example, because when you say culture, Lisa, people think about costumes, dances, food, right, hairstyles. I say culture is a shared way of doing things, seeing things, or thinking about things. That's what, that's what culture is. Yeah, it's one of those that it's, it's, like you said, you don't realize it until it's either you, you change, right. something happens to you to cause you to change, or yes. you listen to someone else who can open your mind and change it for you, which I think yes. this is really the focus of your book here. And, you know, I want to thank you for your time today and, and sitting down with us and talking to us about this. The new book is Dear White Woman, Please Come Home. Kimberly Williams, thank you so much. And I hope people who are listening will will sit, like put the, put the interview on pause, sit there, listen, digest. Mm-hmm. maybe look inwards a little bit and say, hey, you know, there's probably some work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm reaching across the aisle here, Lisa, and I hope folks reach back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Magda Hellinger was 25 years old in 1942 when she was rounded up with all the other single women in her Czechoslovakian hometown and sent to a Nazi concentration camp. But because she spoke fluid German, Magda spent most of her time at Auschwitz as a prison functionary who was responsible for overseeing hundreds of other women. It was in this role that she did what she could to save as many lives as possible. Her story is recounted in The Nazis Knew My Name, a remarkable story of survival and courage in Auschwitz. I spoke with Magda's daughter, Maya Lee, who wrote the memoir using her mother's diary and other interviews. 
Over the years, we've heard remarkable stories of survival and acts of courage from those forced into Nazi concentration camps. And your mother, Magda's story, is no different. But what strikes me about her story in particular is how much of a difference she was able to make just by really retaining her humanity in an impossible situation. You grew up hearing her stories. What was it like for you to to hear these stories from her and then now in the years after her her death to really try to flush everything out and and, and put this book together? The, The difference between her story and many other stories of the Holocaust, which are all gruesome and quite frightening and quite, you know, quite amazingly powerful, her story is different because she had this very long on and off standing Uh, responsibility, a prisoner functionary, and nothing has been written by or about prisoner functionaries other than the Kapos, which were uh, heinously cruel and evil people. So sometimes they were brushed in the same, you know, in the same brush because it was just easy to do that. And mum in her situation, uh, her background was quite strong in leadership. And her background was also a kindergarten teacher. So you got the extreme of leadership and strength and pragmatism and the gentleness and kindness of the kindergarten teacher. And I think that within the camps for her, uh, her situation, her personality was able to set herself into a position which she knew she can't get out of, but she's going to do the best she can within that where she is. Yeah, her, the the role that that she served was as a, a block eltiste, and can you tell us a little bit of what that is for people who aren't familiar? A block eltiste is a block leader. Block leader. Her role was. I mean, she was given. She was nominated to be that within the within the structure of the camp. Her block eltiste was responsible for at that time for one thousand women. Or she was responsible to making sure that the roll call is uh, um, efficiently done. She was responsible for organising the food. She was responsible to maintaining order as well as keeping an eye on disease within the block. Now, uh, she was able to use that position due to her um, ability to oversee what's going on to save many lives by creating a peaceful, quiet block which stopped this SS coming. Because any amount of chaos or noise or disruption brought the SS guards with their guns and very quickly they would shoot or take the whole block to the gas chamber. So she was very intent on maintaining that order not to bring uh, the eye of the SS on her block. And uh, she even in the in the roll call, which was her, she didn't do the roll call, but she had to be at every roll call. She was aware that sometimes the, the weaker and sick girls were selected to the gas chambers during the roll call as well. So she tried to arrange the roll, the sick girls in the middle of the one thousand women, so that the SS doing the roll call would not notice the sick girls and pull them out. And that in itself was also. Uh, some sort of passive resistance against the system. You write that growing up, your mom was always very positive, very forward-looking. Did she ever share with you how she managed to keep her composure and and be that way in in spite of everything that that she had suffered through and had witnessed? 
I think she writes about that in her book, that she was always in fear. She always feared and she was always I was angry, I suppose, at what was going on around her, knowing she cannot do anything about it. She just had that personality. She was in this situation and she was going to do the best she can. She didn't fall apart. She didn't become a victim, which is unusual. And that was her nature. That was her personality. Because before the war, she was with a youth movement, the Hashme Atzair, which is a Zionist movement, which was very focused on um, eventually going to Palestine uh, to create a new state, new nation. And in, within that organization, she was quite strong in the leadership uh, situation. And that was part of her nature. So she took that with her in her approach to what was going on around her. Even from the very moment when they arrived and they ended up in cattle wagons as against a commuter train when they were think, thinking they're going to work, she took ch charge of her own feelings even then. She didn't panic, didn't fall apart. She actually used her moment and skills, natural skills, and that wasn't something she was focused, I'm going to do this, to try and calm some of the girls who were, in, you can imagine, in panic, uh, terrified. And uh, that helped her also and also helped the girls as much as she could. I want to talk about the title because I think some people may just glance over it and not really understand the significance of it, which is it's called The Nazis Knew My Name. And that's remarkable considering the, the whole point for the Nazis is that they sought to dehumanize Jewish people by putting them in these situations, by, by putting them in charge of themselves so that they maybe diverted some attention somewhere. And they really didn't. They weren't there to learn people's names. But... The camp, as your mom went from, from the couple of camps that she was transferred in between, they knew who she was. Basically because they saw her the way she was managing her, her leadership situation within the blocks. And that within the camp was noticed. We have to remember that this camp is like a big city. And the, the, the SS were like the council or like the, you know, within the city. And they were... Noticing, noticing and noting what was happening around them. And they were very glad that they had these block altistas, Jewish block altistas doing their work for them, thinking that they distract away from them having the SS in charge of every block, also release some of their workers. Uh, the Nazis knew my name started when, on the, from the very beginning, uh, mum was a Steuben Deist, which is a room helper, as they arrived after their initial uh, disinfection and initial initiation, so to speak, into this place, being totally stripped of their clothes and shaved, their hair was shaved, etc. Um, her job was to go to the bread a bakery and collect the bread with 16 other young girls, which she nominated because she knew if she takes them with her, they'll be spared from going to outside work, which is usually demolishing or just useless, futile work, like digging rocks out of the ground and then putting them back again. And with these 16 girls, she went to the bakery and while she was waiting for the bread, there was a young German SS guard there. And mum describes her very well. She was chubby, blonde, plats, about 18 and 19 years old. And she was standing there supervising what was happening. And all of a sudden she says to mum, what's your name? And mum was actually quite stunned because this is an SS guard and she is 2318. She has no name. And she said, 
responsively, my name is Magda. And without thinking, she says, and what's yours? And she says, my name is Irma. Now, just to fill everybody in, if they haven't read the book yet, Irma Grazer, uh, at the age of 22, was executed after the war for her heinous war crimes. And uh, so this is the same uh, Irma Grazer. Uh, Later on, mum meets Irma Grazer a few months later, and she sees that she's totally changed. She's slimmed down. She wears an immaculate uniform. Her hair is pulled back into a beautiful bun with a little cap on top of it. Her belt has a silver gun in it. Her boots are shiny with a whip in the, pushed into the boots. And she actually says to Irma, hello, Irma, now you look like a real SS woman. I mean, <laughs> this is something came out of her mother. It's called chutzpah. And uh, she, to this day, until she lived, she couldn't understand how come she had such audacity to do that. And she thought at this point, oh, my God, I've overstepped the mark. And Irma sort of said, like, more or less, never mind, never mind, and kept walking. Now, mum was always walking a fine line between the SS and herself. And this was one of the times where she just got away with it. During her time of being relocated to Block Altester of Block 2, then she was Block Altester of the French girls, then she was nominated to be SS of the elite, uh, sorry, block elders of the elite group, uh, which was the workers for the SS, you know, like secretarials and, and office workers. Uh, I guess her skills were noted. And Kramer, which came in in 1943 to Auschwitz from Belgen-Belsen, he was notorious in his cruelty and his evil and his total disregard for Jews and people. But somehow he... Noted, noted mum, or maybe through the system he was told about mum and how she manages the situation and how she's not she's respectful, basically, and he called her Magda or Hallinger. Now, this was the commandant of Auschwitz camp. And by being, uh, respecting him, and he somehow regarded her as maybe a novelty, I don't know, the other SS guards suddenly thought but they better be careful because she is a protege of Kramer. <laughs> and the Germans had this very correct attitude. You do not argue with the one above you because you may be demoted even further. So we could, that also helped her a lot. Now, w- w- hearing all those stories about your mom, she she sounds like an incredible woman. That that attitude of hers, did was that there after the war? Is that what got her through the ensuing years, just being this... She knew what she wanted. She knew to ask for it, and that's how she got through life. Yes, but you know, look, she wasn't a hero. You know, it's not as if she was a hero and did heroic things. For her, they were natural, natural way of being. What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. And in the meantime, she'll do what she can. And her attitude was, I can only go up that chimney once, and I'll do what I can during the time in Auschwitz to do what I can. I mean, you probably have you read the book? I have. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah, so you know the parts where she saved many women in various situations in, you know, Block 25, when she saved those 800 women by getting the guard drunk. Mm hmm. The, the, well, the, the, the distractions that she employed that seemed so simple but were yet so, so effective. And that's why I meant at the top of the interview, 
just by, by, by keeping her humanity and trying to be a good person, she was able to affect so many lives and save so many lives. Right. Well, after the war, she, uh, the war finished for her on 8th of May, 1945. With, with the other, again, using her strength and using her ability, she was able to get the girls, the few remaining girls, 300 of the Slovak girls, back to Prague. Uh, because they were sort of ignoring the Slovak girls. Every other nationality were allocated buses and trucks and things to take them home. Uh, she managed to get to Prague with the 300 girls which survived. Once she reached Prague, as far as she was concerned, she had left Auschwitz. Auschwitz was behind her. She didn't dwell upon Auschwitz as I am a victim, and it was horrible, and she never reflected on the misery of it all. She just moved forward. She wanted to go home to her town to see who was there. She finally, I don't know, I'm not sure how long it took her, but probably weeks or days to get back to Michalovce, her town. When she got there, obviously the town was so different. People were not there. Out of the uh, 7,000 uh, girls who left on, in 1942, uh, 300 girls came back and they went to different parts of the city. And so she came back to her hometown, to her house, and went to visit her friend Marta, who was not deported because she was already married. So she went to Marta. Marta had a nice dinner. They sat down, discussed the future. Marta never, they didn't discuss where mum has been for three and a half years, yet they were very best friends, and life went on. So I want to ask you, there was a study done here uh, in the U.S. that found a shocking number of young people under the age of 40, something like 63%. Uh, did not know that 6 million Jews died during the Holocaust. How do you think your mother would react to hearing that so many people are either not learning about what happened or or have forgotten what happened? Actually, my mother probably would be quite distressed about that because she would be thinking that they're denying my existence, my survival, mine and 6 million other people who died and the other few who survived. I'm not sure exactly what she would have done about it, but she would have been horrified that these children are not taught. Because in the preface of her book, she says, I want the teachers, the priests, the rabbis, the academics to teach the children so that this never happens again. What do you want readers to take away from reading your mom's story? I want the readers to realize that you can be human in the most inhuman situation. That my mother as a single person, was able to do so much good in spite of the fact that she was also in, in drama of being killed at any moment. She was also sick with typhus and paratyphus along the way, and she was saved by her colleagues and friends because her mantra was also girls, help each other, help each other to be uh, support each other so that this way you can have a chance of survival. Um, I want people to realise that if you help each other and be kind to one another, there is hope of survival in any situation, whether it's a local girlfriend who's struggling with depression or she's struggling with children who are, are difficult for her, so help each other. Um, and I want the world to know that this did happen and there are people who uh, suffered so much, yet they were still able to have a life. We've been talking with Maya Lee. Uh, the book that she's written is The Nazis Knew My Name, A Remarkable Story of Survival and Courage in Auschwitz. 
it, her mother is also contributed as an author because it's based on her own writings, that her name is Magda Hellinger. Maya, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, and thank you. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we'll play with our food when we sit down and chat with Camilla Alves McConaughey, whose new kids' book turns a classic parenting struggle on its head. How to handle those picky eaters. Until then, get your fill of us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.